All right, guys, if you have your Bible open to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, this morning we're going to pick up where we left off uh, a couple weeks ago uh, in in Philippians. Um, last week, Dalton uh, Messer filled in for me while I was away. I will, he's not in here, but thank him for doing that. But I know he did a great job. We're going to pick up this morning where we where we laugh, last left off of uh, a couple weeks ago. We're in chapter three, and uh, we'll begin in verse seventeen in just a moment. But just to recall what I've said about this section of the letter that we're that we're in, I've mentioned it a couple of times um, now. How this section that runs from three one to four one, uh, so if for so those three one and four was more sort of bookends ish to uh, a section of this letter you you can easily sort of see that each of those each of those um verses they each have a command in it that's relevant to the themes within this section so 3 1 begins or it ha- it includes this uh this theme to this command to rejoice in the lord uh and then 4 1 ends on the back end with this command to stand firm thus in the lord so Persevering joyfully is the theme of this this neighborhood of the letter. In the first half of this section, uh, we saw that that theme of rejoicing come into play. Um, that's the passage we looked at three weeks ago. It came into play in this in this sense where this verses one through uh, uh, well, the first half through verse eleven, uh, it's just this crystal clear uh, description of the gospel and joy in Christ because of what he's done for us and what we have in the gospel. He's Paul himself rejoicing uh, that what he, what he used to see was valuable in his life. He, he is now trash in his mind that, that man, that now he can be found in Christ and gain Christ, be found in him in Christ's righteousness, having no righteousness of his own. That was the first half of this. And then we came to the middle of the section where beginning in verse 12, we looked at 12 to 16 last time we were here. Uh, Paul, we saw Paul pivot a little bit to this, this theme of perseverance now, which is that part of that, that theme of the command of 4.1. Um, and how did he do that? Well, he was still speaking sort of autobiographically about his own life, not just how he came to faith in Christ and be found in him and having his Christ's righteousness, not having, but now he's saying, and now still speaking autobiographically, this is what I do now that I'm in Christ. And he talked about pressing on. I, I press on. He used that word over and over again to, to greater and more consistent obedience to Christ. He's saying that even as an apostle, that's what he's saying there, that I, I, don't, I don't believe I've attained anything. I've not achieved anything, but I press on. He used that word repeatedly. And I don't know if you remember that that word, I told you what the Greek word was that that is translated press on there. It's that Greek word dioko. And that word is is used a lot of times in the New Testament. And most of the time that 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 word is used, dioko, it's it's translated as to persecute. When it talks when the New Testament talks about persecution, dioko is the root word of that. And 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 that's on the on the negative side of the meaning of that word. That it's it has that idea of chasing down hunting down, pursuing in order to persecute, right? Hunting after. That's the way, and in fact, that's the way that Paul 
lived his life before he came to Christ. He said, I even hunted them down to foreign cities. I obtained papers to give me the authority to do that. That's where he met Christ on the Damascus Road. Paul used that same word in that middle section where he talked about this is now this is now how I treat following Christ, not to persecute him, but I'm chasing after him. I'm pursuing him just as hard and just as fervently as I used to chase him, hunt down un, uh, believers to persecute them. This, the, this relentlessness that characterized Paul's daily life of following Christ, being always mindful in, in every circumstance to honor Christ and follow in his steps, whether that means, as he'll put it later in 412, whether that means in times of being brought low or times abounding, hardship or happiness, I just want to relentlessly obey and honor Christ in all things. Well, in our passage today, beginning in 317, we're going to run all the way through 4-3, actually, just just beyond that final uh, bookend. Um, Paul is is still on this discussion of perseverance, uh, and he's going to talk about things that that we need we need to know and things that we need to be aware of as we press on, as we persevere in Christ. Um, and it's going to include the examples that we have in our life and, and the mindset that we have. Um, you know, do we surround ourselves with a, ourselves with the church and, and other believers? That's the kind of things he's going to talk about in this passage. He technically finishes this section in four one, but we're going to we're going to tack on verses two and three as as well, which is this discussion of two ladies in the church there in Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche. We're going to tie try to tie what he says about them into this message of the rest of the passage. So let's read the passage, uh, and then I'll lay out what I think we can see here. So if you found Philippians 3, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 17, we'll read through chapter 4, verse 3. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that in, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, uh, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All right, let's, let's pray and then we'll, we'll, um, we'll dive in. Lord, what we just read is your holy, uh, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to spend these next few minutes in very conscious awareness of that fact. And would you give us 
minds to understand what Paul is saying here and then give us hearts to embrace, fully embrace uh, into our own lives what he's saying here. Would you give us wills to put into action what he's what he's commanding and admonishing us to do? And Lord, for all that to happen, would you give me the help that I need to teach and um, and to teach clearly and what is right? And would you please give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word? I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so I've, as I've as I've already told you, and hopefully you saw as we read the passage, the main emphasis of this passage um, is is about our perseverance in Christ. It's 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 Paul still talking about pressing on and and forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He's still in that same train of thought here, but he's going to talk about things that we need to know and be aware of in order to to do that joyfully and happily and successfully and faithfully and consistently, right? And and he's going to talk about examples we put in front of us. He's going to talk about where we consistently put our focus and our thought, where our thought life goes, how we how we are are just very natural and 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 normal way of looking at the world around us these these things that are going to influence all of that like paul knows that we're constantly being catechized we're being taught uh by 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 something and it's whatever we put in front of us we're being taught we're being molded we're being shaped we're being influenced by whatever it is we keep our focus on and constantly look at so if you're taking notes here's how i want us to divide up this passage to think through it. First, in verse 17, I want us to think about the commands. The commands. Paul gives two of them, actually, in verse 17, but they're two commands that are aimed in, in the same direction, right? They're, 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 they're two commands that, that move us toward the same thing. And when we talk about this, we're going we're gonna to think about a good rule of thumb also about commands, that when you come across commands like this one in, in anywhere in Scripture, um, that especially in the, in the New Testament, um, you, 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 you want to not just ask, what is being commanded of me here? It's always a helpful exercise, good rule of thumb, to say, why am I being commanded to this? Why? Um, that'll also often teach you something about yourself the fact that you need to be commanded of that you know so that we're going to do a little bit of that in verse 17 the second point is going to come from verses 18 and 19 i want us to see the caution that paul gives um the caution that he gives when when we put our focus on the wrong things on the wrong people uh on the wrong ideas all things that paul is going to call enemies of the cross and then in verses 20 and 21, Paul's going to give us the contrast to what he just said in verses 18 and 19. So verses 20 and 21, he's going to contrast putting our eyes on earthly things. That's, that's verses 18 and 19. He's going to contrast that with fixing our attention on Christ and the certain reality that believers have in him. That's verses 20 and 21. And then finally, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 4, we're going to consider the conclusion not just of the whole, not of the whole letter, but of this section of the letter. Paul's just in these verses. Paul's just going to sum up what he's been saying. He's going to impress the importance of it in this illustration with Yodian and Tiki, and he's also going to impress on us the importance of the local church in this life of perseverance as well. So that said, 
Let's dive in and take a closer look at the text. So look back at verse 17 of chapter 3 for a minute as we think first about the commands that he gives us here. So look at verse 17 again. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And as I said in just a second ago, I want us to think about what it is he's commanding us here and then also a little more about why he's commanding this of us. First, what he's commanding. And like I said, technically there are two commands here. There's two imperatives. The first one is in that word join. Join is in the imperative um, mood. It's, it's join in imitating me. That's a command. And the second is keep your eyes on. That's, that's a phrase in English. It's one word in Greek. Keep your eyes on. It's watch, notice, look carefully at those who live like and provide the same example as Paul does to them. That's two commands all aimed at the same thing. And what is the example? He says, basically, imitate me. And if you look at anybody else, make sure they're an example of what I've been doing and what I've shown you. Well, what is the example that they've had in Paul? What is he saying there? Well, just think of these commands in the context in which they sit. What has Paul in this very passage shown us about himself? Well, the chapter, again, this is just rehearsing what we've already said in the last few weeks. The chapter opened with Paul describing autobiographically how the Lord brought him mercifully to saving faith and how he now, that he's found Christ and been gained Christ and been found in him, now he, he, he has come to the place where he, is, he can clearly see that any other possible thing that I could ever think of uh, to, to, to be worthwhile in my life, I, I see it now as, as rubbish, as trash, compared to knowing Christ. And then he outlines the purest gospel of being found in him, which means knowing that you don't have a righteousness of your own, that you, you, we don't have any hope before God based on our own goodness, our own worth or works. But, it, but being found in Christ means that, that through repentance and faith, we're found in him, in the sight of God, that we're given a righteousness from God. The righteousness of Christ granted us when we repent and believe. But then he, he also showed us in this uh, passage, this chapter, that, that once that has happened in a person, he uses his own life as an example. Once that happens to a person, that person now wants to honor Christ more than anything else in their life. Like to know, though, to use his language, to know the power of his resurrection as you try to live obediently, even when it's hard and always forgetting what is behind and pressing on daily to walk more closely, obediently with Christ. Like, that's the most important thing in their life. Paul is saying, watch those kinds of people. And watch them in such a way that you can now model your life after theirs. It's really, you see how they live, and you live the same way, or you strive to live the same way. It's really as simple as that. I mean, we, we could... We could like try to get all elaborate on, on on these commands, but it's it's basically that. Find godly examples, watch them, notice how they live, and then try to do that. That's the that's the command. So I I, I just I have to submit to you. Just think, who are those people in your life? Do you have people like that in your life? Like. 
you should probably sit down and think about it. Sometimes we're so mindlessly distracted by our phones or whatever else. We never actually sit down and think about our own life. But do you have people in your life that, that you say, yeah, I should model, they are godly, they are a good godly example to me and I should model my life after them. I can, in my life, I have men like that. My own dad is one of them. Brother Al is one of them. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Bruce Ware, is one of them. Right? There, there are men that without fail I can look at and say, that is a God, and they're ahead of me in life. I can look at them and say, that's where I want to be if God gives me that many years. Right? There are men who believe the gospel, who know that the whole point of their life, the whole point why I'm here is to follow Christ and obey him more than any other pursuit in my life. And Paul's not just saying, that's a really good idea, although it is. It's, it is a really good idea if you have people like that in your life and you try to model your life after that, in, very intentionally so. Paul is saying, you must do it. You must do it. And again, these, these, are, these are things that he's commanding us of. But that leads to that second good rule of thumb question. Why? Why would Paul be commanding this of us? Because we don't do it naturally. We don't do it naturally. That is not to say at all that we don't naturally follow examples we see. Oh, we very naturally do that. We very naturally follow examples we see. But it takes a very particular effort not just to notice, but then actively follow those who are walking in the right direction. Because we're constantly being pulled in the wrong one. And it's real easy to just float downstream and be pulled in the wrong direction. And the reason he's not just suggesting it, but commanding it, is because we're surrounded by examples like I just said, that are going in the other way. But this command to follow good and godly examples, um, uh, is, is, if you're thinking about that, is, is actually also a command to us to be a good and godly example to somebody else. The fact is, all people, people watch. We're all following examples and being examples to somebody, some kind. I can remember when I was a kid and uh Charles Barkley was playing basketball. He's playing I was I don't I was too little, I don't remember him in Auburn very much, but I remember in the NBA. Charles Barkley. You you're familiar with him. Not surprisingly, he would often do things and say things that were um uh people would say, Well, that's not being a good role model for kids. You know? Um Charles Barkley, being Charles Barkley, would often reply I never asked to be a role model for anybody. I don't want that job. I think I don't think it should be my job. And so leave me alone. Basically, I I never as if you have to ask, "Hey, I sign up for it. I want to be a role model for somebody." No, that's not how it works. That's not life. You are a role model for somebody. You are. You're you're by your existence, you're you're being an example for somebody. Um and that's just how life is. And not all the not all the same things are attractive to everybody, but we all find examples in our in, in, in our life 
that 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 are attractive to us for whatever reason. And then and then once we follow that, then we're being that same example for somebody else. We and, then, and when we find that thing that we most naturally gravitate to, it's easy to follow, even when it's opposing Christ, unless we're actively putting our eyes on those who are falling hard after him. Paul knows it's easy to do otherwise, which is why in verses 18 and 19, he gives the caution um, that we have to have in who we watch and follow in life. Think with me about the caution for just a little bit. So notice how Paul begins this word of caution in verse 18. What are the, what are the first two words of verse 18, at least in the ESV? It's for many. Many, many, Paul is very aware that genuine, born-again, Christ-following believers are always a minority in every culture. And there will always be many who pursue lives and passions that believers simply should not follow. But it's not always easy for us to see the way that Paul describes them here, at first glance, it seemed like, oh, yeah, that'll be those people will be easy to spot, and I'll I'll just know very good I shouldn't follow their example. But I don't know, so I, I I think it's a little more deceptive than we might give it credit for at first glance. How does Paul describe these poor examples to us? He says first that uh, in um, in verse 18, it says at the end of it, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And we say, well, that'll be easy to spot. Well, he gives three descriptions of them in verse 19. I'll say a thing about the fourth in just a minute. The three descriptions are their God, little g, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And they set their minds on earthly things. I know he also said there that their end is destruction We'll come back to that in just a minute, but that's technically not a description of the things that these people pursue in life, as those other th- three things are. He says their God is their belly. What does that mean? Well, don't take that completely. Literally, as if their physical belly or just food was the only thing he's talking about here. When Paul says their God is their belly, He's talking about people who are ruled by their passions. They are ruled by their passions. Whatever those things may be, and they're usually not the good things. Paul, I believe, said essentially the same thing in a different way in 2 Timothy 3 when he talked about people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Those for whom their God is their belly... Pleasure is what they love and live for. Pleasure is what they love and live for. Whatever that is for them, it's not the same for everybody. They're ruled by sexual passion, food and drink, whatever whatever appetite is strongest in them. And Paul says of these people, there's no repentance or temperance in them whatsoever because it's, in fact, he says they glory in their shame. What should be and is shameful, they're proud of. They boast in. Paul says they glory in it. That's not just what we see writ large in our culture. 
That's in every human heart. That's in every human heart. That every sin we entertain, we grow to love even more strongly. And the more we grow to love it, we try to find a way to justify it in our minds. To make it not prick our conscience quite so hard. And then the longer we done that, do that, when it runs its course, eventually we'll get to a place where we, we will feel silly that we ever felt like we had to justify it at all. And it's, and it'll be to us, it's just obvious there's nothing wrong with it. And we boast in it. That's the digression. And Paul's third description here is not just that their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. They simply go through life never thinking about the things of God. Earthly things. We're bound to this and what we see. And they live for this as if this is all that there is. They live for it. Whatever pleasure makes them happiest. That's what I'm going to build my life around. But we didn't mention it earlier. Did you notice what Paul said in verse... 18, we looked at the fact that he began with so many. And he, we talked about the fact that with that phrase, enemies of the cross of Christ, but we didn't address the middle of that verse. What else does he say there in verse 18? He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears. Why did Paul so often talk about this with them with tears? Perhaps because some of these people that he, were, he was talking about were professing believers who were living this way, maybe. It was tragic how they were living, glorying in their shame when they professed to be a believer. Maybe that's why he's crying. But perhaps also he's pleading, Paul is simply pleading with them because their temptation to follow their example was so strong and it, and it, it scared Paul. And I think that could likely be it because we know our own hearts, and because we get glimpses of these things even in the Old Testament and other places in Scripture. I want you to hold your place here. Uh, we'll come back to it. And flip over to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. The, the temptation uh, is so strong, even in faithful believers. Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a great psalm. I mean, you can say that about almost any psalm. Psalm 73 is a great one. Especially when you're fighting temptation like this. So we're going to just read verses 1 through 12 first. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But notice how the psalmist Asaph goes. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. How? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they 
threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. That's why I say the temptation to follow examples and even to see them in the first place as examples you shouldn't follow is often harder to spot than you first might imagine. Because often the wicked prosper. Often it's it's attractive. It it's shiny. It's so easy to just set your mind on earthly things. And even Asaph said, I nearly slipped. My feet had almost stumbled. But look at what the psalmist learned in verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end which was what? Verses 18 and 19. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Well, When you go back to Philippians 3, that's what Paul says as well. About those whose God is their belly and who glory in their shame and who set their mind on earthly things, and I'm sure as Psalm 73 says, they they have no troubles, they, they're at ease, they prosper. Paul says in verse 19, their end is destruction. So Paul is cautioning us to be careful what we're looking at, right? What we're constantly dwelling on. How they're shaping our habits, how they're shaping our desires, how they're shaping our loves. Certainly, he's given us already one way to be careful about that, and that, that is through having godly examples that who's ex, who, who we can imitate and who we can model our life after as we persevere to love what they love and prioritize what they prioritize and do what they do. But he gives us another help in, in this discernment when in verses 20 and 21, he provides us with a contrast to remember the good and goal of, for every believer. In verses 20 and 21, this is the third point. In verses 20 and 21, Paul reminds the Philippian believers and us of all that is true in Christ. He's going to speak in shorthand here because he, he already spent the first half of the chapter talking about this, of all that is true in Christ. And it's a contrast that because Paul presented those in verses 18 and 19 as completely focused on this world Without any thought to their end, Paul contrasts that with believers who live more faithful in this world because we have given thought to our end. That's the contrast. He says of believers in verse 20 that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, when Paul says citizenship here, he's used this word one other time in Philippians. Does anybody remember where that is? It's back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 27, when he said, that this was an important uh, verse, when the beginning of that, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That word, 
let your manner of life, that's that same word here, uh, translated as citizenship, let your life as a citizen of the kingdom of God be worthy of that citizen of which you're a part. And, and he's stressing that again here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to a different kingdom, and that citizenship is fixed. We belong to Christ. And Paul says we're awaiting Christ's return, at which time we will be transformed into his likeness and reign with him. It's the complete opposite of therein is destruction. Reigning with Christ. And the book of Hebrews helps us to... Uh, put this point together with the first one about godly examples and the future that awaits us. A great verse is Hebrews 13, 7. If you want to jot that one down. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So as believers... We're mindful of what we believe, not just what Christ has earned for us in the past, but what Christ will bring us, bring about in the future. And we're mindful of believing examples that we can follow in life, who believe that gospel faithfully, prioritize it, and follow it as we as we press on. But before we come to the last point, we just need to be reminded of of Paul's main aim in this part of the letter. He's urging the Philippian believers to persevere and and stand firm in Christ. And how he's done that so far in this passage is he's commanded us to follow good, find good examples to follow. He's cautioned us against just living like whatever the culture loves around you. And he's contrasted that faithless life with the promise of what is head, ahead for believers. And Paul's going to finish this passage reiterating the command to stand firm and persevere and exhorting two ladies in particular to reconcile as they stand firm in the Lord. So think with me about the conclusion as we try to land this plane. So the conclusion. In four one, Paul reiterates this command. is stand firm, thus in the Lord. Um, I love Paul's expressions, though. My, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my beloved stand firm thus in the Lord. And when he says stand firm thus, we don't say thus very much, if ever. Weird if we do. Thus means in this way. Stand firm like this. Stand firm in this way. What way? All the ways he's just talked about. Remembering the gospel, persevering, uh, you know, persevering, following good examples, remembering our future in Christ, Easily, more easily discerning bad examples we shouldn't follow. Paul concludes this section with an admonition. And in verses 2 and 3, he reminds them of how important the church is to our perseverance in Christ because the church is where we're going to find the good examples to follow, where we're going to be reminded of the gospel and the gospel hope that awaits believers when Christ returns. But he points to two ladies who had labored side by side with Paul and were very faithful in gospel work. And he even says at the end of verse 3, their names are in the book of life. Um, so he's not questioning their salvation. But they're at odds for reasons we're not told. And Paul thought this was a serious enough deal to add it to the letter, and it is forevermore in Scripture. So he doesn't question their salvation, 
but he does see their their disagreement as a hindrance to their faithful perseverance, the thing he's been talking about. So what does he do? He asks the whole church, I ask you also, my true companion. I, I, I think he's I think he's talking to the whole church there. That's um, that's uh, that's who he's writing this letter to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. I think he's appealing to the whole church there in Philippi to come alongside these two ladies and help them to agree in the Lord for their good and for their perseverance to the end. Well, in the passage that's coming up next, beginning in verse 4, Paul's theme is going to return to, to joy again, among other things. But in this section that we're, we're bringing to a close, Paul has, I think, given us much good reason to press on and press on joyfully in Christ.